0: Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on 89.9 FM and at WERU.org. My name is Holly Cederholm, and I'm your host for today we'll be discussing plastic pollution and the impact it has on the environment, agriculture, and rural communities. I'm joined by Erica Serino, who is a science writer, author, and artist exploring the intersection of the human and non-human worlds. Her photojournalistic work depicts the numerous ways people connect to nature and shape planet Earth. In her 2021 book, Thicker Than Water, the quest for solutions to the plastic crisis, Erica documents plastic across ecosystems and elements, the ways plastic and its industries are harming low-income rural neighborhoods and communities of color, and strategies that work to prevent plastic from causing further devastation to our planet and its inhabitants. Erica, welcome to Common Ground Radio.
1: Thanks for having me, Holly. It's great to be
0: here. Well, I wanted to start with what might feel like an easy question. What is plastic?
1: Plastic is considered a polymer, which is a scientific term used to describe something that is made of repeating chemical units that are really tightly bonded together, plastic being kind of a class rather than one monolithic substance because there are many different types of plastic. And the plastic that I'm focused on and most of the world is focused on right now is the problematic type of petrochemical-based plastic that could be any combination of petrochemicals to create low-density polyethylene, all different chemical mixtures there. And I think that when we we look at plastic as a class of materials, it's hard to just define it simply. But if we think of all plastics being made of fossil fuels, that's kind of the basis of what we're looking at, something that's never going to benignly degrade, instead break up into smaller and smaller pieces that are still plastic.
0: So since plastics invention in the 1800s, it has supplanted natural materials, including a whole bunch of things, ivory, wood, rock, metal, or you write in your book, banana leaves, which were traditionally used as wrappers for food. And you just mentioned one of the, the strengths of plastic is that it doesn't really break down. That's also its downfall. It's simply persistent. What about plastic makes it so persistent? And ultimately, why is that problematic?
1: So it is this kind of crazy chemical molecular composition that makes plastic so problematic. And the mere fact that it's made out of fossil fuels also introduces us to a whole class of toxins that are manufactured into plastic. So all different types of additives that are based out of petrochemicals and the chemical industry in producing, say something that's UV resistant, so it won't degrade easily in sunlight or something that won't fade, its colors will stay vibrant over long periods of time. And so we're looking at something that um, is made to last, and that's pretty much the worst part about plastic: is that it's a toxic material that will last forever. There's no good way to get rid of it. There really is no place, no such place as a way. So we can't easily uh, say, "Oh, you know, when I put it in re- my recycling bin, unfortunately, it's not going to be dealt with in a way that we've long been told is." You know, helpful and benign. In fact, it's just perpetuating the problem.
0: In your book, Thicker Than Water, you wrote that humans have produced over 8.3 billion metric tons of non-recycled petrochemical-based plastic, and that 76% of that was essentially single-use. And you just said that it doesn't go away. It's really hard to fathom all this plastic being used. I'm wondering what types of things has plastic been used for, and, and where is it going?
1: Right. So I also want to point out that by this point, which is 2023, there's been more than 10 billion metric tons of petrochemical-based plastics produced that are not recycled, um, with much of it ending up in landfills in the environment. The uses of plastic are numerous and almost unlimited. Everything from paints to ceiling tiles, clothing cars, seats. I mean, I could go on and on. I could say that the biggest, one of the biggest use of plastics is single-use plastics. And these are things like uh, the packaging that goes around our food products, packaging we might find when we're shopping for clothing or, you know, single-use bags at the grocery store, utensils, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, (laughs) you can, we can look around Plastic is used almost ubiquitously in the medical industry um, because it is perceived as something that's sterile. And because of this throwaway kind of mentality we have towards plastic or the mentality that industries have encouraged us to take on, it is kind of uh, a material that's been viewed as disposable. So it's not something that was ever sold really to be recycled or created to be recycled. Rather, we've been told to recycle it, and the reality is that most of it's just being tossed away. You know, chemical recycling and uh, mechanical recycling are different processes that we've been introduced to over time, and these concepts of reusing plastic are kind of ground in science that just doesn't add up. So that's why we're seeing the numbers not really making a difference. you know, 9% of plastic historically, perhaps even less has been recycled in any meaningful way. And that often really means the plastic is just being toxically transferred into another material. Say you have plastic bottles and they become a pair of jeans. They're still shedding those tiny plastic particles everywhere. It's not like it's eliminating that problem when it's exposing whoever's using or wearing that product to those toxic plastic particles. So it's not really always about recycling our way out of this. It's really about reducing our use of plastic and eliminating the problem from the source.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the common terminology. You just talked about shedding um, plastic. So genes made out of recycled water bottles might be shedding plastic parts. And there's different terms for that. There's microplastics and nanoplastics. Could you talk a little bit about those terms and what they mean?
1: Sure. So these are concepts that I just want to point out. It's really only boomed in the last 10 years or so, our understanding of it. And I've witnessed firsthand this issue at sea, like sailing through the garbage patch in the Pacific, crossing the Atlantic. And at that time, you know, 10, 5, even five years ago, um, the understanding of these particles or the fact that all plastic products all around us are shedding tiny pieces off of them at all times. They're not. Inert, Yes, they are inanimate and um, a solid, seemingly solid, but plastics do shed particles, and these particles end up in the air, in the water we drink, in our food, um, and ultimately into our bodies, which is really frightening. So the term microplastic is kind of the larger size range, um, about five millimeters to one nanometer, and then one nanometer and less is considered a nanoplastic, this is like an extremely small particle. A microplastic, you might be able to see, it's about the size of, say, like your pinky nail on your finger. That's like the, the larger size range. And these you can find if you look closely, say when you go for a walk or the next time you're on a, a nearby beach shore, just look down and you'll see these little pieces of colorful plastic or white pieces of plastic. Maybe they look like shells, maybe they'll look like confetti. People have their own interpretations of what they appear as, but these are basically just pieces of plastic that are broken off of larger items. It's not something that's just going to sit there. These pieces of plastic, as I mentioned, they really travel far and wide. So we've found microplastic in our atmosphere, on the tallest mountaintops of the Himalayas to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the lowest point in the oceans. So they are traveling all through the earth and again in our bodies. So they're pretty problematic and ubiquitous for sure.
0: You just mentioned that you traveled to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You were a crew member on a research vessel that was looking at some of the plastic particulate in the ocean. Can you talk more about that? What is the garbage patch for people who might not know it? And what did you observe while you were there?
1: Yeah, so the garbage patch is just a a kind of a sad name for a stretch of ocean that is in the Pacific. The eastern portion, think of the coast of uh, California, and the far western portion is Asia and parts of Japan, Indonesia. And because these are two highly populated areas, um, North America, South America, and then parts of Asia um, and the Pacific Islands, there's a lot of plastic that's just pulled from these shores and accumulating in what's known as an oceanic gyre. So this is a circulating ocean current, and there are really two smaller gyres within this larger Pacific gyre. Um, I sailed through the eastern portion, which was, our trip was from Los Angeles, California to Honolulu, Hawaii, and going out there at that time, again, this was in 2016 when I sailed, and the understanding of this area has really greatly increased since then. But the understanding was that there was this giant garbage dump just floating in the ocean that was twice the size of texas then it was three times the size of france and people were making all sorts of speculations of why it was there and what was going on and a lot of blame was put on polluting or dumping in the oceans specifically in which that has happened and it was a it is a very large problem was a very large problem but the greater understanding is that most of the plastic that is ending up in the oceans is really originating as garbage that's tossed on land. And because it blows, flows, or rolls into the ocean, it is gathering in the circulating current, kind of like a whirlpool that's just swirling trash around and really quickly breaking it up into these plastic particles, which are almost, I would say, to most animals are more problematic than the larger pieces, which some animals can avoid. Not that those are, you know, fishing gear, lost at sea and um, larger plastic items that we use on land do kill and entrap animals. But these microplastics and nanoplastics can be easily ingested by almost every living creature from the smallest blue mussel to the largest blue whale. So this is a danger that's widespread and and every animal is vulnerable.
0: So I want to shift just a little bit. You mentioned the toxicity of plastic. So plastic in itself has a toxic nature, but you also talk about in Thicker Than Water, plastic being little poison pills. Basically, the pitted surfaces of the plastic particulate can harbor pathogens and chemicals, including E. coli, DDT, and then another chemical that's been getting a lot of press lately, which is PFAS, PER and polyfluorical substances, which have earned the the dubious name uh, forever chemicals. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how plastic surfaces turn into reservoirs for these toxins and pathogens.
1: Right. So uh, plastics are not only manufactured with toxins, but they also have the potential to absorb and leach them, as you mentioned, from the natural environment. So unfortunately, today we live in a very polluted world and there are chemicals in the ocean, in the air, in the soils, and in other waterways, for example, fresh waters, which tend to be large sources of pollutants. And although they could be diluted in a whole body of water, plastics have a fat-loving or lipophilic effect. And many of these really toxic chemicals, especially the ones that are known to interfere with human hormone function, including PFAS, they really easily stick to the surface of plastics. They're kind of like attracted to it and, kind, and hitchhike on it, but also pathogens like bacterias, fungi... Viruses often act in the same way, and they find plastics, kind of the, these transportation devices that they can take and travel far and wide into the bodies of living beings, but also um, invasive species can cross whole oceans and colonize areas where they were not normally found. So it is an issue relating to you know the toxins around us, but also the organisms that are perhaps unseen or invisible to our eyes that are being transported by these plastics.
0: You are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. I'm Holly Cederholm, and on today's show, we're discussing plastic pollution and its impact on the environment, ecosystems, and rural communities with author Erica Serino. So going back to the conversation of PFAS, I was interested in a section that you wrote about where you were speaking with a chemistry expert at the University of Buffalo who warned that the total... PFAS contamination of drinking water containing microplastic might be underestimated because the microplastics can be impregnated with chemicals and then go undetected in water testing. And as many of our listeners might know, the Environmental Protection Agency lowered drinking water health advisories for four PFAS contaminants last June. So I was wondering if you could speak to this specific relationship between plastics and PFAS. Sure.
1: PFAS are commonly found in plastic products themselves. So besides being used industrially in different applications that might just release into the environment, think about Teflon pans and a lot of rain jackets, umbrellas, and other gear that has these water repellent properties or nonstick properties. There are also articles of clothing that you might not suspect have PFAS in them, um, you know, again, due to these characteristics that we tend to value or are useful to us in some way. Um, And unfortunately, so much of these, so many of these chemicals, including PFAS, are discharged into the environment, often along with microplastics. And because microplastics cannot be easily filtered out of uh, water treatment systems and most modern water treatment systems, do not catch all the plastic particles or maybe don't even catch any plastic particles. Um, Again, this is an issue that we're just starting to understand and many of the antiquated uh, water treatment plants, especially in the United States where I'm based, um, are not made to capture these chemicals and these plastic particles. And so because also testing for PFAS is not widespread, it's not required, as you mentioned with the EPA, reducing its maximum contaminant limits of it, we might be exposed to levels of this chemical that are harmful to our health.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about plastic in the soil. We've been talking a lot about plastic in water. And I know you mentioned that microplastics can move into the food chain through ingestion of water. I'm also curious about microplastics in their relation to food. It was estimated at least in um, 2021, when your book went to press that 39 to 52,000 bits of microplastic are consumed per person per year. It might
1: be more than that. As our understanding has um, expanded, there's been plastic found um, in various parts of the human body and just in the past few years in lungs, placentas, in our bloodstreams, and in our food supply article after article that's come out and, you know, community testing of, of foods and, and drinking water has really shown us that it's in everything really, and especially in packaged foods that we eat. But also I was really surprised to learn in a lot of the produce and um, farmed fruits and vegetables because it's in our soils um, and often farmers in different parts of the world may apply sewage sludge on their fields, maybe not for human consumed crops, but um, for animal feed. And the transfer of plastic particles has been documented in wild animals from you know, going from a fish to a seal. And you can imagine if it's going from say, uh, the ground to the grass, to a chicken, to a person or any type of animal really. Um, and it's also being found in plants like carrots and apples that we're being exposed at all times to these plastics in our diets. It's very concerning <laughs> um, because when you think about it, there's really no part of the earth that's been untouched by microplastics. Again, these are more prevalent if it's in packaged food because it seems that when plastic packages are open, they shed particles. Plastic water bottles, for example, are found to be a really major source of microplastics in our diet. So if Folks are trying to avoid consuming plastic in large quantities. Fresh food is definitely a better option, but because packaged foods are just found to be way more polluted.
0: Thinking about a carrot that may have microplastics in it, is the the plant uptaking the plastic the way that it would uptake nutrients from the soil? Like, How is the plastic getting into fruits and vegetables? Well, the science is still... Underway, And I am not a
1: botanist or a soil scientist, but based on my understanding as a science journalist, it's being taken up in the roots, yes, along with other nutrients and water, for example. Similarly to us consuming microplastics as humans, uh, plants would also hypothetically be vulnerable if their root system pulls it up. And that's not to mention the chemicals that are in plastic as well, because some plants we know are bioremediators. There's not been enough research to understand how ubiquitous this issue is, but I think in the coming years, we'll really find out a lot more as attention is paid.
0: In addition to sources such as sewage sludge, I'm wondering if you know of other sources of plastic.
1: Oh, definitely in agriculture itself. I have uh, farmers in my family and they've long... Use traditional ways of farming, but over time have introduced plastic or plastic culture into their practices, just because it is the most available and seemingly effective type of agriculture. I mean, covering your crops with plastic sheeting to prevent weeds or to keep crops safe um, during winter months or harsh weather. And these plastic sheets are often discarded straight in the field, or it's been advertised that these sheets will quote unquote, biodegrade or degrade. And this is just not accurate. So this is a frightening time because there is so much plastic used in agriculture. I can even think of, you know, the coating on seeds sometimes is plastic or often is plastic, depending on what kind of crops you're you're growing or grasses, et cetera. And just the fact that it's not going to be taken out of the soil is leading to soils that are more and more plastified and it's really led some people to even call the era that we're living in the plasticine because there's literally a geological layer that we're leaving of garbage, um, non-degrading plastic garbage. And
0: part of that legacy is that this plastic pollution is disproportionately impacting communities of color. What is the impact of plastic pollution on communities of color?
1: So in addition to the layer of plastic trash we're leaving on top of the planet. Communities of color, indigenous communities, and low-income and rural, rural people are disproportionately exposed to the pollution caused by plastics production, use, transportation, warehousing, and disposal. So plastics don't just start and end when we buy them off the shelf and then put them in the trash or the recycling bin. Plastics first, as I mentioned, start out as fossil fuels, which are disproportionately extracted in communities of color, low income and rural communities and indigenous communities. So starting from the top of the line, the most vulnerable people in the world are exposed to the dangers of explosions, toxic air, water pollution, waste dumps, constant truck and diesel traffic. So there's that part of it, the extraction. And then there's the production. And that's introducing, again, all of these similar hazards, but different chemicals, but all different kinds of pollutants that can increase one's risk of asthma, cancer, skin diseases. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's not only disturbing in the sense that no person should be exposed disproportionately to the risk of plastic pollution, but that it's really reiterating this classist and racist system that we have in place socially and economically that suppresses the human rights of certain peoples and comes at the cost of lives to profit huge industries that are extracting fossil fuels, producing plastics, but also then the folks that are dealing with selling the plastics, transporting the plastics, dealing with the waste, uh, waste management and the um, toxic trade in plastics, which is not only affecting people in the United States, but across the world. So much trash has been shipped historically from wealthier nations to developing nations. And I've spoken to folks all over the world, but specifically work with people that are in Turkey, and they've been reporting trash from all over. And to know that this problem, it's not isolated, it's global, it's interconnected, and it's leading to racism and classism across the world. Not deal with it is to allow these industries to keep harming our whole society and, and really limit progress because we've come such a long way I think as a society in waking up and realizing that people's human rights are being violated daily and being able to talk about it openly and freely is a huge development but these communities have been suffering for a long time and have been speaking out for a long time and I'm so glad to see that you know the wider society appears to be listening but these industries continue to deflect and distract and deny that they're creating these problems. And yet it's, it's the most urgent problem there is really is that this discrimination is happening.
0: Plastics, you write also contribute to climate change and people of color and rural areas and low income areas are also often on the front lines of climate change. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how plastics contribute to climate change.
1: So that's a problem that, again, disproportionately affects vulnerable communities. But ultimately, it's something that nobody can outrun or outsmart unless we we do something to address the problem. But plastics being made of fossil fuels, they inevitably release huge amounts of greenhouse gases all throughout the process of their production, uh, again, extraction, <laughs> production, use, disposal. Plastics off-gas greenhouse gases simply by existing, and especially when they're in the environment where they are breaking up into microplastics, where they may be exposed to high temperatures, sunlight, and different microbes that are attaching themselves. So we have an endless cycle of greenhouse gas release. So instead of sequestering and keeping fossil fuels in the ground plastics, they are using up this resource that is finite, releasing greenhouse gases due to the production and the energy intensive practices of all of these steps needed to deal with the problem. And then during quote unquote disposal, as we know, it's not really disposed. I look at recycling too and point to recycling because that is such an energy intensive process. And for something that industries have said we must do to plastic and put the onus on people and on consumers to deal with is really unfair because it's, it's leading to more and more injustice. And I think we were as a society very much unaware of this until recently But knowing that plastics are incompatible with a future where we deal with the climate crisis in a realistic way really underscores the need to stop using them, stop producing them.
0: So the subtitle of your book is The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. And I've already heard you mention a few (laughs) times that one of the solutions is to just stop using plastic altogether and to hold the sources of plastic um, accountable for the The destruction that they're emitting into the the world. In your book, readers can tag along with you as you shadow work crews collecting discarded plastic on a remote shoreline in Hawaii and another in Thailand, as you interview inventors focusing on removing plastic from our waterways, and as you interrogate when and where recycling works and falls short. We've already talked about recycling quite a bit. I want to dive a little bit deeper in, is recycling working anywhere
1: This is such a nuanced question because there is so much plastic all around us. So a big conundrum we have is what do we do with all of it now that we have all of this? And burning it is definitely not the answer in the sense that that is going to cause an immense amount of greenhouse gas emissions, toxic emissions. Burning plastic is one of the most toxic practices you can engage in. So, okay, let's look at recycling. If it was done hypothetically in a way that does not further harm vulnerable communities and it does not harm the environment, could it be useful? The answer is really complicated and we're not there yet. I think there's a lot of people that are trying and trying different things. Some of them are well-intentioned projects, some of them are less well-intentioned, but there are many projects underway that are looking at plastic and seeing is there a way that we can reuse it, um, maybe reuse it several times before we have to you know, ultimately use it for another purpose. But the sad truth is that there really is no safe way at this time to uh, recycle plastic without causing harm.
0: So how do we keep plastic out of the environment in the first place? Like At the top of the show, I listed a few natural materials that have been supplanted by the plastic industry over Decades. So there's wood and rock and all these different materials, but how do we make the shift away from plastic? What does that look like on a cultural and an industrial scale?
1: Looking locally is definitely better than looking to the industries because, unfortunately, even different materials, the more natural materials, woods, metals, stone they all come at some kind of economic and social cost. And often the same communities that have been harmed by plastics production are also harmed by, say, aluminum refining, which is highly toxic. And bauxite ore can, I've seen it covering a whole town in orange dust. And and the consequences of that are, you know, similar health hazards to plastics. And, And also the release of greenhouse gases from industrial production of these products and materials is, is really problematic. And so it's fortunate in the sense that humans have created a lot of materials already. So we have to look around us and see what we have. And the solutions really lie in a value based future where we embrace principles that are healthy for people and the planet. So this is an ethic of refill, regenerate, repair, share, reuse, and then also refusing single use plastic. So if you have to use plastic, if there's no other alternative can you use it again without, you know, causing undue health consequences to yourself and to others? We're not at a perfect place because plastic still exists. It will probably continue to exist for a long time in our lives and be produced for a long time. But in the meantime, what can we cut out that is easiest? So single-use plastics. Why do we have to have plastic forks? Why can't everyone carry? a metal fork from their home or a bamboo fork that might easily slip into their bag and they can wash when they go to work or or school. A lot of plastic stuff is simply created for convenience sake. What would it mean if our society slowed down? What would it mean if we all valued our health, our planet, and each other instead of speeding through life, chasing who knows what, (laughs) focused on maybe making money rather than building a world that we need to survive? And so we're seeing this already. Many schools, many universities are implementing water fountains and water bottle refill stations. For example, I've been to several workplaces that have outlawed any type of single-use products, and they also encourage use of real plates, real forks by providing those free for the community. I've seen small compost systems that small neighborhoods have already created and To know that we don't need to rely on big companies to make our lives run smoothly is really an empowering and beautiful thing. Personally, I've been growing a lot of food in my garden and knowing that I don't need to buy packaged food is amazing. And I actually save a lot of money this way. And not only is it good for my physical health, my mental health is a lot better. And I think a lot of the crises we're seeing today are based in anxiety and stress. And, you know, people have hard lives and sometimes just slowing down a little and taking stock can make it a lot easier. And it doesn't have to cost more money. It doesn't have to be difficult. The solutions are really simple to the plastic crisis, which is the the sad truth, because this is a problem that has caused so much suffering and continues to cause suffering. And we really need to build a world that's way more just and non-toxic and accessible.
0: This is Common Ground Radio on WERU-FM 89.9. Today's discussion is focused on plastic pollution. I'm Holly Cederholm, and I'm in conversation with Erica Serino, the author of Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. Are there other ways that individuals can affect change in a world so contaminated by plastic? I'm thinking about local, state, and federal action or other suggestions you might have
1: strong regulatory solutions that are effective and enforceable is an important step forward. And there are a few pieces of legislation that have either been passed or proposed that take a better and more holistic look at the problem and consider many of the far-ranging issues that we discussed today. So things like environmental injustice and correcting the problems with toxic pollution affecting communities and also with plastics being produced and curbing production at the source rather than thinking about how are we going to clean up and also holding industries accountable through things like extended producer responsibility schemes that require corporations to either be logistically, financially, or ideally all of the above responsible for the plastics that they have produced and do produce. So the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act and the Protecting Communities from Plastics Act. These are both proposed legislation in the United States, but for inspiration in the US, we can look to Europe, which recently, several years ago, implemented the Single-Use Plastics Directive, which has been kind of an experiment in real time. And we're seeing different nations in the European Union have different interpretations of this legislation, which is not ideal, but I think a lot of progress is positively being made. And again, this is implementing different systems that encourage those values that I said previously. So instead of producing more, we're reusing what we have, refilling what we have, sharing and repairing and regenerating as well, which is super positive. It's not perfect yet. And I think divesting from fossil fuels is the ultimate goal here. And knowing that we need to stop using these petrochemicals that also cause pollution and are being used to make plastic more than anything else as we move forward in our future where we're concerned about the climate crisis, which is one of the most urgent issues of our time. The UN is working on um, a forthcoming global plastics treaty. So this is a global agreement or a, uh, a mandate that could help us potentially shape a future that we need. It's complex in the sense that it needs to be, again, fulfilling all of these needs, addressing all of these difficult issues. And unfortunately, the plastics industry still wants to make plastic despite all of these truths. And so to know that this legislation can't just be enabling, it needs to be really strict and really holding these industries accountable. So that's one major thing that could be helpful. Another thing is to improve business practices. So if you are a business, you can help move things in the right direction. I've seen amazing zero waste shops, which encourage refillable, reusable products. They also offer you to bring your own containers and you can refill them as you come in. And also dedicating maybe a, like zero packaging. So maybe there's no wrapped products in your shop. That's an amazing step forward. Um, and if you do, you know, for example, sell food, if you're a restaurant to only use reusable ceramic, glass, metal, and avoid plastic products. And a tricky thing in the business industry is that we have to watch out for greenwashing, which is making products look more clean and eco-friendly than they really are. It's so important to do our homework and really understand what we're purchasing as is or individuals. Those are all important things. And of course, shifting your individual behavior, but realizing that this is a systems type problem. So it's larger than any one person and it's not your fault for using plastic. It's all around us, and you can only choose to do better and encourage those people around you to do better so that we can model the world that we want.
0: Thanks, Erica, for joining the show today and talking a lot about plastic. I know I've learned a lot, and I hope our listeners have too. Up next, I'm joined by Caleb Goosen, Crop and Conservation Specialist with the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Hi, Caleb. Welcome to Common Ground Radio. Hello.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I spoke with my first guest, science journalist, Erica Serino, about plastic used in agriculture. Since you work directly with farmers, I wanted to talk to you about the types of plastic that producers use and why. Sure. So
2: there are a lot of different plastics that do get used. One of the ones that's maybe most visible for home gardeners and and general consumers that people think about would be like plastic trays or um, pots that seedlings often get started in. What gardeners and and sort of home growers maybe see are the thinner weight ones that are often single use or maybe can be used a second time, but maybe start falling apart, things like that. There are also sturdier ones that are, are much more long lived that a lot of farms will use for their own transplants that aren't ever meant to leave the farm. And then, of course, that makes us think about the setting that those are produced in, which is usually a greenhouse and um, greenhouses have greenhouse plastic which is a a very specific type of clear plastic to let lots of sunlight through and to try to help trap heat um, and those are not are not single year lifespans but they do have limited lifespans. So first they can eventually degrade to the point of losing structural integrity and they'll be more likely to tear or rip, higher risk of damage and potentially losing a whole crop in a a bad spring storm or something. But the bigger issue that some farmers don't even realize is that after about maybe five or six years here in Maine at our latitude and with our, our summers, the plastic starts to become a bit more opaque, and so it doesn't let nearly as much light through to the crop. And so that will eventually affect things. So for those reasons, greenhouse plastic does need to get updated regularly. There are also some longer-lived solid plastics, like polycarbonate panels that some greenhouses are made out of, but those greenhouses tend to be much more expensive as an upfront purchase, uh, because it's not just the the plastic itself, but the frame that that holds it It needs to be a specific type of frame that can hold that kind of panel. And that also adds a lot more upfront cost typically. Once those seedlings are put out into the field, there's often, not every farm, certainly there's plenty of farms that don't use what's called black plastic mulch, which is like a plastic film mulch that growers will put into a field, into big long rows and plant into that. It's somewhat important for some crops up here when we're really trying to stretch the bounds of things like sweet potatoes or other heat loving crops because that black plastic mulch will help warm the soil a bit it'll also importantly help balance out the water it can exclude a lot of rain but it also will help preserve soil moisture because it limits evaporation from the soil surface it also is primarily used as a weed blocking mulch. Were those weeds to be present at the same time, they would often be moving water out of the soil and out through their leaves, just like the crop is. And it, it, But really, it's, it's the labor savings of not having to hand weed and pay for people to hand weed, et cetera, that makes that plastic mulch important for a lot of growers And then under that plastic mulch, we often, not always, but we often have farmers using what's called drip tape, which is a a form of irrigation. And that's a little plastic tube that gets hooked up to bigger plastic tubes as a sort of a network of irrigation to help get water to crops. It's certainly not the only form of irrigation, but it is a common one. And that drip tape often is about an eight millimeter thickness so it's a it's relatively lightweight plastic and so it's expected to have about a one-year lifespan Um, there are other options though that that last longer most people are not as worried about like plastic harvest containers and things like that because they're used so much and, and they last for many years a lot of people are also wishing they could package the produce with less plastic to get it to the consumer I know consumers want less plastic, and I know the farmers wish that they were using less plastic themselves. I don't think I know any farmer that doesn't wish they were using less plastic. Leafy greens really lose moisture incredibly quickly. And if you don't have them in a plastic bag and you need to, keep them in a cooler you know overnight because you harvested them in the afternoon and they're going to a farmers market in the morning or anything along those lines pretty much anything other than direct harvest straight to the consumer which is incredibly rare often we need some sort of moisture barrier to help keep moisture in the in the crop and keep things healthy and in terms of the plant's vigor uh, even though it's been harvested it's still living until it's, it's still living until it's cooked or eaten And uh, also, you know, that stress, if they're losing a lot of moisture, that can cause some plants to get bitter or take on off flavors, things like that.
0: So one product that you mentioned was black plastic mulch. I know there's also several products on the market that are biodegradable. What's the difference between those and non-biodegradable plastic mulches?
2: Yeah. So for our certified organic farmers, there are not currently many, any biodegradable plastic mulches that are allowed. There are other biodegradable mulches that are allowed for use in organic production, but they're not plastic. But the rules would allow a biodegradable plastic mulch to be allowed if it was primarily sourced with bio-based materials, feedstocks to make the plastic with, and had a proven rate of of decomposition and, and full breakdown in the soil. The Plastic mulches that are available that do do decompose are, while they, some of them may say, you know, made out of corn or made out of soy, they often mean made with corn or soy, not exclusively out of, um, and they often still have a, a very large percentage of the feedstock making the plastic is from petroleum. The compounds produced are, they have been making big strides in making sure that they are actually biodegradable. Although there's a lot of big questions that I think are pretty hard to answer. At what point are they fully decomposed and, and versus just being broken down into smaller pieces? There's another class of plastic mulch that are called oxodegradable. And those, as they're exposed to light and air over time, they break apart into smaller pieces. And that's not true decomposition. And those definitely would not be allowed in certified organic production, although there are some still on the market that non-certified growers can use. Uh, along this topic, more and more we have growers using silage tarps, or which is a, a larger agricultural plastic, which is typically thicker than black plastic mulch uh, and a larger piece of fabric. And many growers are using this in place of tillage, and they're using it many years. So it's less of a, a one-time thing the way a black plastic mulch is. Another area that some folks have gone to to get away from black plastic mulches is using landscape fabric, which is still a plastic fabric. It's woven. It's much more durable. It will last many more years. And they often will burn holes at specific spacings in it to plant a crop right through. So they use it like a sort of like an in-between the black plastic mulch and the silage tarp. So if you think of a silage tarp as being a a tillage implement to shade the soil, kill weeds that are underneath it and prepare that ground for planting into again. And black plastic mulch, which is laid and then holes are put into it that plants are placed through. And and these landscape fabric approaches are sort of a a mix of both of that, where they're covering a much bigger area, preventing weeds from growing through and and helping to preserve moisture in the soil. Uh, But they have the holes to allow the plants to go through as well. And they may add some heat because they're typically black and warm up in the sunshine.
0: So you talked a little bit about the different kind of weights of plastics and shelf life and degradation. So the sun can degrade certain plastics or if you're ripping like black plastic mulch up after a season and might leave behind some bits of plastic. I'm wondering if growers who are choosing to use plastic should be concerned about what's termed shedding, the the residual micro and nanoplastics that the plastic might leave behind in their farms and gardens, and how that might impact the ecosystem.
2: I think pretty much everybody in the world is probably concerned about this in general. I'm less worried about it from a black plastic mulch that our farmers are using. It's part of the organic regulations that they are required to remove that from the field. And that means the pieces that break off as well. And so, something like that, where it's a single-use plastic, it will have been UV stabilized, and so it's not going to break down enough over the course of one year to really get bad in most cases. So farmers can hopefully either pull it up intact, or they should be um, removing pieces. Whereas those biodegradable and oxo-degradable plastic mulches um, are designed to be breaking apart. Um, so if Somebody were to try to remove those because they weren't decomposing well, um, they're just going to break into much smaller pieces rapidly. I don't know this in terms of that anybody has quantified it. I'm a little concerned with the potential for landscape fabric to leave behind fragments because it is woven. And when you've, if anybody's seen really old landscape fabric, it, even though it's UV stabilized, if it's been used for years and years and years, it will eventually start to break down. Most all uh, agricultural plastics have UV stabilizers in them. They have a, a lifespan, but that's why with like a home gardener, if they've ever tried to make their own mini greenhouse and used some clear plastic from a hardware store that isn't specifically designed to be a greenhouse plastic. It often is not UV stabilized. It gets cloudy very quickly and can fragment and break apart pretty quickly. So it's certainly a concern, the heavier grade plastics and keeping an eye, visual inspections for plastics that have longer lifespans. You can see when they're they're getting worn and and then you can start to consider whether, whether or not it may be time to replace.
0: What about floating row cover, which is also kind of a spun plastic material that people reuse and it seems like a good thing to, to reuse, but it also breaks down over time. Can you speak to that?
2: Yeah, some more good questions that I think we need more answers on. Row covers they can vary a bit by manufacturer i've seen on farmer email discussions where folks will say yeah just don't use you know this certain product this brand because it it sheds fibers and nobody wants that whereas most of them don't tend to shed very much that at least that i can see but the longer that it's left out and if it's a lighter a lighter weight one they're more likely to get holes and that's where things are going to start unraveling and where i think I think once a hole is in place, things can unravel a bit more and shed fibers a little bit easier. So row cover serves a purpose in both excluding pests and in um, trapping heat uh, underneath it. So it's useful for frost protection, for getting crops to grow a little bit better when the weather's cool, like it is right now, and they need a little bit of heat to keep growing. And it's also used to exclude pests. And so when I can, I like to switch to an insect exclusion netting, which is still plastic, but it's, it comes in various weights. And if you get a heavier weight one, it can last up to a decade. Also, if it gets a hole in it, because it's woven and not spun bound, floating row cover is spun bound where I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I think basically the plastic sprays out of a nozzle and um, sort of lays in random patterns and, and clings to itself these insect exclusion nettings are woven netting material and it's a similar weave to um, t-shirt fabric so if you've ever had a t-shirt a hole in your t-shirt and it doesn't spread that quickly that's because of that specific weave and so a small hole in one of these in this insect netting is not likely to make the whole thing fall apart need you to go buy more plastic and also to have that unraveling that might add to fragmentation
0: In an article published in the Maine Organic Farmer and Gardener, an organic farmer, David McDaniel, provided a rough estimate of Maine's ag plastic waste by extrapolating farm census data. He estimated that Maine's farms produce approximately 488 pounds of plastic waste per farm per year for a total of just over 4 million pounds annually. Again, this is just an estimate. With the sustainability adage going reduce, reuse, recycle, are there ways to reduce plastic use in agricultural production? I know you've mentioned a few, but I wonder if you wanted to elaborate on that.
2: So there, there are a few and it all kind of depends a bit on your context. A lot of our crops can be grown without black plastic mulch. However, that often comes with a trade-off in terms of labor required. Then there are the crops that don't grow well without black plastic mulch. And those are ones where we're probably pushing the boundaries. If you want sweet potatoes grown in Maine, at least with the current varieties that we have available to us, we typically need to something to give them more heat because we just don't have the heat in the number of days that we need here. Pretty hard to avoid greenhouse plastic. Of course, greenhouses always used to be glass houses um, and that could come about again, but it's just such a big upfront cost that I don't think most farmers could make that investment. The irrigation, there are solid set irrigation, which is made out of metal and that uh, can be used, but that's often an overhead irrigation. And so it's a less efficient use of water. So there's some trade-offs. If somebody has a great access to a huge inexhaustible supply of water, then using overhead watering is not such a big issue, although it may increase their risk of some plant diseases by making foliage wet instead of just watering the roots, whereas drip irrigation goes right to the soil and is much more water efficient. So some of this is a little bit like once the genie's out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in. And then in terms of reducing plastic, uh, another approach people, use is to just try to get away from the single-use plastics. So I mentioned drip tape that might be eight millimeters thick. I For my own home garden, I recently bought what is, I think, the thickest walled drip tape um, on the market, which is 25 millimeters thick. So while each one of my drip lines is going to be three times roughly as much plastic per foot of bed, I should be able to keep those drip tapes for more than three times uh as long as that initial so if i pay a little bit more get a a longer lasting more durable product it's less plastic when divided out over the total number of years that i'll be using it but it's more of initial plastic so it's kind of like what are you where are you making your measurement i think everybody is is hoping that that packaging to get to consumers they can They can find more solutions. There's some really great things that it's a little easier for a CSA farm where they can maybe put things into a reusable tote that gets uh, brought back to the farm and then not as much needs to be bagged up each time. And yeah, everybody's trying to find more things. And if anybody has great ideas, I know a lot of farmers that have tried a lot of options. So they want to make sure it works before they actually do it because a lot of things that people try just you get unhappy customers you get poor results and it's harder to sustain your business maybe but i I certainly know lots of people are interested in any ways that they can
0: what about recycling can the ag plastic materials we've discussed be recycled why or why not
2: it seems to be a bit of a, a concern for all plastics in our society that they're maybe not getting recycled nearly as much as we used to think. Ag plastics in general are worse in that concern because one of the reasons that plastics don't get recycled easily is that they have to be cleaned if they're dirtied. And while ag plastics are probably more uniform in that they're mostly polyethylene and not a mix of different plastic types the way household plastics are, they also are in contact with soil and crop debris and maybe are you know touching manures or sprayed with a pesticide, even in organic pesticides. So things leaving residues, all things that are gonna make it more difficult for a plastic recycler to actually do the recycling. There's limited options for recycling. We do have a program that we're trying to keep afloat where we are accepting greenhouse plastic specifically uh, for recycling. And the reason greenhouse plastic has been targeted is that it is one of the cleaner plastics. It does still get kind of dirty around the edges where it's in contact with the greenhouse frame, but those can be cut off. And then the the larger bulk of it is um, relatively clean plastic and, and a pretty good chunk. David McDaniels, who you mentioned, was the big driver behind making this happen in Maine. Don Pendleton at Mafka is one of the, the folks who's really one of the driving forces to keep it available. And the trick is just how to make it easy enough for a farm to get the plastic to the drop-off to get recycled and easy enough for the recycler to value it so that it's uh,
0: not overly expensive to get it done. So the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association is acting as the host for the greenhouse plastic recycling program. So how do producers who have plastic participate in this program?
2: Well, all the details will be available on our website and probably with greater accuracy than what I'll try to convey now. But essentially, it's after following some specific guidances on how to package up the greenhouse plastic. And like I mentioned, it's cutting off those those dirty edges. Um, There's a specific folding regime to try to get it all to fit nicely and neatly on a a single pallet for ease of loading. And then once it gets to a drop-off site and to MAFCA, it will be handled um, from there as long as it's clean enough to actually be recycled.
0: Do you expect to see a change in ag plastic usage in the future, whether that's in terms of products, methods, types of recycling? You spoke a little bit about um, different technologies. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about what we might see. I know there is more work being
2: done on Um, truly biodegradable plastics, and so there may one day be some that are allowable for use in organic production as plastic mulch. And similarly, there's of course people working towards that with other types of plastics for packaging. Most of the farmers that I work with are all trying to think of how they can switch from plastics that they have to buy repeatedly that are maybe shorter lived to longer term plastics or some other system or some other usage. It gets a little tricky in Maine. Um, There's some techniques for growing without plastic that work well in organic systems with very warm soil. And the past few years we've had in Maine, they probably would have worked okay, but you get a spring like this one where uh, the first week of June is cold and rainy and things are just not warm enough to get the the whole system to work the way that, that you really need for good production. I also think there are folks who are looking towards other materials, naturally sourced like wooden packaging or cardboard packaging uh, that can be used that will hopefully limit moisture losses from a crop but still be protective for the consumer.
0: Well, Caleb, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today.
2: Yes, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org, as well as on the WERU app. Thanks to my guests for joining me. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Caitlin Barker, and the show's editor, Claire Poland. Stay tuned for more great programming.